Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2, now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us, all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots! 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 Now streaming. He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Who does that? Vacation Friends 2, rated R, now streaming only on Hulu. This episode of Running, can we talk about the boom of cricket analysis by discussing the history of crickets? And so we got on a journalist who has just written all about them. My name is Mike Jakeman, and I'm a freelance journalist specializing in the relationship between sport and money. On this episode, we talk about legendary statistician Charles Davis, Hawkeye, old scorecards, TV, working for teams, Krishna Tunga, and we look at some of the people who made crickets what it is today. You wrote a great book about cricket a few years ago, which I have. Actually, it's not behind me. I think it might be downstairs. The name of that was, I know it's out of date, but you still want to sell as many copies as you can. It was called Saving the Test. And as my father-in-law likes to say, some of the rare unsigned copies are still out in the world. <laughs> I remember um, there was a, a joke with Dickie Bird once when I was up at Leeds. And this guy said, oh, I've got a signed copy of that Dickie Bird book. And the woman uh, at the... Uh, bookstore at Leeds said, yeah, they're worth more without a signature yeah. than with a signature. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Let's talk about the effect of T20 on cricket itself. You pitched this idea to your publishers about basically writing about sort of modern day money ball in cricket. And it's not so much about the relationship between sport and money in this particular case. It's more about uh, data and, and sport. What was your thinking? Why did you think this was a good piece to write for Wired? So, I mean, Wired are concerned about the future and sort of cutting edge of technological change. And I think everybody who knows anything about cricket is aware of the, the origin story of 2020. But what interested me was the fact that we'd been playing 2020 for 15 years by this point. And the people who were best at it were the ones who'd figured out how to do it well. And I'd noticed that several companies had started to kind of figure out that access to huge amounts of data is the best way to learn how to play 2020 cricket. We knew that some of the measurements that we'd use to assess the quality of first class or test cricket or even one day cricket were not particularly applicable to 2020 and they needed to look for something a bit more rigorous and a bit more focused on how 2020 is different to those other forms of the game and that's what led me to a company called Crickviz who I think are the primary proponents of this 
and they became the, the center of the story that I, I ended up writing for it. That was something that was very interesting. It's almost a history of Crickvis in a way, your piece. Did you, did you look at some of the other Indian companies? There's uh, Sports Mechanics and Kadamba and, and some of the others, or was it just more that, because Crickvis is the most high profile, I suppose, you know, they have an app and <laughs> they're all over Twitter and everything. So in some ways they're the most famous, even if some of the other organizations perhaps have um, done just as much work. Yeah, I think there's a, the difference here is that Crickvis was intended to be public facing first. This was the idea that it could be sold to broadcasters and could be used by cricket fans through the app, which was the, the first thing that the company developed, their first product. And then it was only once these were out and being used that the teams themselves suddenly thought, hold on a minute, we can use this too. There's a lot of information here that we don't have access to. And it was only after that, I think, that they started to develop the other side of the business, which is, in some cases, embedding their analysts with the 2020 teams in a way that uh, Kadamba, for example, also do. Yeah. Let's start with the origins of CrickViz then. Aidan Cooney is, I suppose, the most important man. For those who, he's not a very well-known person in cricket, and yet he owns a percentage of wisdom. I don't know how much. Aidan will probably message me later to tell me I shouldn't be saying that, but um, uh, he's certainly involved in Wisden and he's involved in Crickviz. So in some ways, he's involved in the oldest property in cricket and one of the newest properties in cricket. Yeah. And as you say, he's not somebody that I knew anything about. He's not the public face of Crickviz at all, but Crickviz is his company. And prior to that, he was running Opta, uh, which is much more widely known across the sports world because they primarily for their work through football, where under Aiden's ownership in the early 2000s, they started to realize that football needed more data, or rather that there was an advantage to be gained from harnessing uh, football data. So they started to do something really simple, which is hire a bunch of people to start counting stuff that happens in football, but on a much more granular level than was done previously. And then once they started to get that system in place, they could start to look for patterns in the data, realize what actions in football can lead to positive outcomes. What can you do in order to increase your chances of winning a game? Through that, we got metrics like expected goals, which obviously now has over a period of 10 years or so, gradually found its way into the mainstream. And it was as Aiden was preparing to sell Opta that a couple of people who worked for him started to uh, persuade him that there were similar advantages that could be gained from cricket, which, of course, is a much more data-rich sport than football. It's much more analogous to something like baseball. But where baseball has been collecting huge reams of data for decades, cricket has, has really not. And that's what led to the, the creation of Crickbiz as a spin-off company after Opta was sold. Yeah, I, I don't know Aiden particularly well, but I've, I've certainly met him quite a few times. He is a massive cricket fan as well, so you could see why it would be a passion project for him, having done so well with Opta, to think to himself, well, if we can do this with cricket. So I suppose the next most important person at that stage in CrickViz is Phil Oliver, who is, I think, is he the CEO or the CEO of the company? Uh, he's the managing director, and he was one of the more senior analysts uh, Opta who started off counting stuff for cricket and became sufficiently senior that in the end, Aiden poached him and stuck him in as the main guy charged with building up the database uh, that CrickViz obviously needs to run all of its operations because they started with nothing. And it was Phil's primary job at the beginning was to build up the creation of what they hoped was going to be the most comprehensive cricket database in the world ever. And they make a fairly compelling case for why what they have now constitutes that. So he's done various different things to build up this uh, stack of uh, different sorts of information starting with the very simple scorecards that existed and then adding different layers and then ending up with uh, the Hawkeye and virtual eye data, which means that they can now tell you for the last 20 years or so, which takes us to the beginning of the 2020 era, 
what's happened with pretty much every single ball in professional cricket. So who bowled it, who to, did the ball move in the air, where it landed, what did the batsman do, if they hit the ball, where did it go on the field, if they didn't hit it, what did the fielding team do? Enormous amounts of information. And it's that that provides those individual sort of datary grains of sand. That's what's in the background of all of their top line numbers. So for example, when they tell you that England have a 25% chance of winning this test match, that's because of all of the data analysis that's gone on in prior games that they've managed to collate over a period of a couple of years that then led to the sort of creation of the company. A lot of the other companies that we talked about before, so Sports Mechanics and Kadamba, theirs is much more video-based quite often. And I don't think anyone else has the access to the Hawkeye that CrickViz does. And also, not only that, it's kind of a closed shop. I'm not sure Hawkeye would ever do a deal like they did with CrickViz again. I don't know the full background of how that deal works, but I know that other people have tried to get a similar sorts of companies up and haven't been able to do it because I think Hawkeye now realized just how much that could be worth in cricket going forward as well. And you even get weird situations where the Hawkeye data from India, I don't even think CrickViz are allowed to use it publicly. I'm not sure if they have access to it or not, because the BCCI is like, well, wait a minute, why would we be giving this information out to third parties to be able to use? And if you go back a little bit, Crick Info used to have the Hawkeye data on their scorecards. You could just click on it and you go through it. Now, it's very rare to see scorecards with Hawkeye data on them anymore. I think the ICC is one of the few that do it. I remember during the World Test Championship getting very excited at being able to see Kyle Jameson's every (laughs) delivery come back. But it is such an interesting part of it. And I suppose the other sort of big name person at that point is Nathan Lehman, who was a school teacher and coach who became the England analyst. And he was probably the first person to really match Hawkeye data with analysis in that way. What's sort of his relationship with Griffiths early on? So he was the guy that basically sewed all this together and built the statistical models that means they can look at past performance and use that as the gauge of future outcomes. So the next thing that Griffiths are particularly excited about is this concept, just as we had with the opposite of expected goals, of expected runs. And they've started to push this out in quite a, a soft way publicly. You can occasionally get some mm. tweets on this on their, their Twitter feed. But the idea here is that, let's say England are playing India at Lords and their first inning score is 250. Let's be optimistic. The adage is, well, we don't know whether that's a good score until we've seen India bat on the same surface. Well, the, the idea of expected runs is that they're able to tell you, well, actually, based on the data that we've got about the players that are on the field, what they've done in the past, what we know so far about the pitch and the opposition and the weather and all of this, we actually think that 250 is a bit underpowered. And actually, we would have expected, all things considered, a score of 275. So actually, perhaps England haven't batted as well as their potential in these circumstances. And as I understand it, it's Nathan that's done the work tying this together, which means they can use the data that they've got already to create the models that will then tell you their probability of winning the game in WinViz or, or something like this with the expected runs. Yeah, it's even really simple things like having done the analysis on my level, there have been games where I've been an analyst, you know, a side's been bowled out for 65. And then when you go back and you realize almost every time someone played a miss, it was an edge behind. Whereas generally you would expect to play and miss, I think it's 12 times for every edge or whatever the number is that CrickViz have probably given me over the years. And so you do see games like that. So when the coach comes to you, you can go, it's just one of those games. Sometimes you just edge all the balls and, and it's one of those games. And, and that's what I think CrickViz has really allowed for. Uh, the, the, the most noticeable one of recent times is Jimmy Anderson in the second innings. Mm. You know, he's got this huge second innings average of recent times. And I do think that there's a problem going back two or three years. But in the last year and a half, when he's been really bad in the second innings, 
Crickford say he's been bowling the same balls. He just hasn't been taking the wickets. That's a really good thing to be able to tell because otherwise at his age, in another era, it would have been, oh, he's old. Let's get rid of him. Well, yeah, and similarly, you can go back to any number of teams that have chopped and changed their lineups perhaps too often and sapped players' confidence because they've been on mm. poor runs, which previously in another age you could say, well, they're just not that good or they have a technical weakness that's just been found out. Or maybe it was found out. Maybe they're slightly unfortunate with the fact that that led to a wicket over and over and over again. Perhaps Mark Ramprakash's career might have been, to use the most obvious example, quite different at international level mm. if we'd had that kind of granular data to say, well, actually, he's just genuinely been quite unfortunate. I was looking to Graham Hick recently. Graham Hick was the great white hope for yeah. so long in English cricket. And I think he got dropped after his first series. I'm not sure we would see that from a team like England or maybe India or Australia anymore. Like if you were that certain that this player was of the level you thought he was, I think you'd go, oh, well, let's have a look through every dismissal. Whereas back in those days, it was, well, he's failed four times against a incredible attack and we'll get rid of him. So I think things have changed. One of the more interesting people in Crickviz is someone that is not really directly related to Crickviz that much, but I've found him one of the most interesting people in the cricket world is a guy called Charles Davis, who you talk about in this piece. And for those who don't know, Charles Davis is perhaps one of the greatest cricket statisticians of all time. He's basically gone through every Crick Info ball by ball, looking for every single drop. And now he's going through every scorecard in the world to look at the strike rate of every single player. So we now know the strike rates of players before 1980, whereas before we had a little bit of data on the England players, but maybe not all the players. Tell me about what the story behind him getting involved with Crickfizz. This goes back to Phil Oliver, the, the managing director's attempt to build the database for Crickfizz. And as I understand it, Charles's mission at the time was to convert this paper scorecards into a, a digital archive, which Crickfizz had to do that all by themselves, would have taken thousands of, of man hours and been very expensive. Whereas here was Charles holding this thing that they really, really wanted. So uh, Phil was dispatched to Melbourne, met Charles, some conversations went on, and Charles agreed that it was probably in the, the public interest and probably his personal interest too, to let Crickfizz have access to it. I don't know whether that agreement is exclusive, but that was the second layer in their stack of information and building up their enormous database. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that Crick Info obviously have every test scorecard and I assume every first class scorecard. I think that's right. And that was done over the space of, well, six, seven years by hundreds and hundreds of volunteers around the world. And Crick Info basically invented the digital scorecard. So before that, we didn't really have a way of doing it. And you know, they had to work that out. And then they had to train people up in how to do it around the world. And you've got Cricket Archive, which has even more. I mean, Cricket Archive probably has games that you've played in. I know it has games that I've played in. Unfortunately, not all the good ones, but there's a couple there where I come out okay. <laughs> the Cricket Archive has basically almost every sort of cricket game in the world up to a certain level on its database. Those sort of things are quite tough. So for Crickviz to be able to get someone like Charles Davis, who not only is a genius as a statistician, but is also maybe the, one of the most diligent people, to be able to match that with Hawkeye data and to be able to match that with Crick Info scorecards and the ball by ball and everything, suddenly it felt like there was a few different things coming together then. We've always had people like Charles Davis before. We probably just haven't had the ability to match it with 
Crickinfo ball by ball data and Crickviz Hawkeye data and everything else. So it was almost like cricket was coming together. I always thought to Andrew Sampson, like Andrew Sampson has one of the greatest databases in modern cricket. He's got ball by ball stuff for everything. And he's obviously probably, you know, cricket's greatest scorer and also another incredible statistician. I believe he's won the Statistician of the Year award uh, more than once, Andrew Sampson, for cricket. So, and saying to him, you're a big baseball fan. And no one had sort of brought it together. You know, at that point in CrickViz, we were really starting to bring it together. So I don't know if it came up in your research, but probably the first modern analyst is a guy called Krishna Tunga, who's an Indian who stalked John Buchanan, basically found out which hotel the Australian team was in, got himself into the lobby and waited for John Buchanan to walk through the lobby and went up to him with like a bunch of notes and said, I've been doing this. And what Krishna Tunga would do is he took word and he would code each ball into word, which must, I mean, it's so painful. I don't even want to think about how you would do it. But so he could tell the length, the line, if he had a speed, what shot was played, where the ball was hit to, and all those sorts of things. Krishna was probably just a couple of years before this sort of big boom of the ability to be able to do that and to be able to code it. So it feels like CrickViz in many different ways, partly because of Aiden's background and Nathan's background and Phil's background, but also the accessibility. It was almost like a big boom of cricket analytics happening at one stage. Is that how you sort of saw it through the piece? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that the other piece of that puzzle is the 2020 boom, because essentially, I mean, that's brought the money in to spur people like Aiden, perhaps, in order to, to do this. Because I think there's probably a reason why cricket had failed to sort of embrace analytics before then. And it's that it sort of simply wasn't worth anybody's time. But the creation Mm. of 2020 and then franchise cricket in particular has created a whole new set of of customers for this sorts of things. And although I still don't think it's quite there yet, CrickViz still talk about the work selling data to teams and working with teams to understand the data. It's very much a kind of secondary part of their business. But that's one where I would see there's the potential for quite strong growth in the future to the point where you know, all of these teams are signing up multiple analysts regularly because that is ultimately where the big prizes are going to be awarded. And while 2020 keeps bringing the money into cricket, that's where some revenue will be earned, I think. So I think that's the other part of it that it explains why this is happening now and why it's, sort of, you know, you mentioned the fact that the ICC owned different websites at different times and they've kind of failed to capitalise on digital rights and all of that. Ownership was kind of held by different people in different places, and it's just sort of all failed to coalesce into something kind of meaningful. And it's 2020 that's brought private sector operators into this to try and make it something rich and usable. So I think that's really kind of provided the spark. And even to be even more specific than that, it's not just about the invention of 2020. It's about the realization that 2020 is quite marketable. So we've realized that it's more than just kind of hit and giggle, which is what people thought in the very early days. Whereas now this is a serious business and to learn how to do this well requires that kind of data rigor. Mm. Also, just just on a basic level, international cricket is kind of government run. I know it's not always run by governments, but it moves in a way that like government run industry is, whereas obviously T20 brought in free market and owners and all those different things. Reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game, but it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can, and then through that group effort, they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air. And you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan, and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you. The Lawnmower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. 
Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the deck. And the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. Fun story. I've probably told this before on the podcast, but I always enjoy it. That Crick Info offered themselves to the ICC for free in 1996 when it was by far and away one of the world's biggest websites. In 1996, if you had a website, it was one of the world's biggest <laughs> websites. But at that stage, it was certainly in the top 10 most visited websites in the world, especially around that World Cup. And the ICC didn't want to be involved directly with fans. And so they said no. So just to tell you where the ICC has been with this, they are obviously a long way behind, which is why... You know, official stats are not really the ICC's bag because they don't really have that database. I just want to talk about, I mean, the working with team stuff is really interesting, but Crickviz is a real big break. I mean, at one stage, I had more jobs with teams than Crickviz seemed to have as an analyst. And they were still making money, obviously, probably more money than I was. But their real boom, I thought, was through TV. And there's two really interesting parts of this. I suppose the first part is that TV has the ability to now set the agenda on how we talk about cricket. So the smarter cricket is on TV, the smarter we talk about cricket and the better it's written about, the better social media, it, all those sorts of things all go all the way through to junior cricket. Crickfish have played a big part in that. It's not just them. You'd have to give Channel 9 and Channel, was it Channel 4 or Channel 5? I always get confused. Channel 4, wasn't it? You know, some credit there as well for the graphics and, and everything. And you can see that from the time that Channel 9 started using all that technology, umpiring even got better because umpires had the ability mm-hmm. to see the technology. But realistically, over the last couple of years, it's really been CrickViz that have changed the way that we started to talk about not just T20 cricket, but test cricket and one day cricket as well. And that was really their big break, CrickViz, wasn't it? It's TV. Yeah, that's right. So I referred to the fact that selling data to teams is, is their sort of secondary income stream. The first one is selling their data to broadcasters. And they had a a presence in Australia quite quickly. That was their first TV deal. They now have another one with Sky to do for England matches. And that's what leads to the presence of WinViz popping up to say that the probabilities of the different teams are winning the games, which has become their sort of signature, which Aidan laughed off because it was compared to the number of man hours take to build the the database or something as sort of complicated as, as expected runs or wickets this is pretty simple but it's caught fire because it is so straightforward uh it answers the question that people are constantly debating whether they're watching cricket at at home on tv or if they're in at the games themselves you know who's winning i personally quite like the fact that that isn't as straightforward as in football like there is a conversation to be had about that at different (laughs) points in the game and cricket i don't think they're trying to make that reductive they're just trying to add something else to the conversation so the way that the Crickviz work with TV broadcasters is that they will provide, and this is changing all the time, and this is actually a sort of slight badge of honour, is that they consider themselves to have started out being slightly plucky outsiders who are gradually being welcomed into the, the fold of the, the mainstream. And, and part of that journey has been how interested broadcasters are in their material and the fact that where once you know, it was limited to the, the WinBiz graphic popping up a couple of times a day, now they'll find that their analysts are in WhatsApp groups with commentators on the days before matches to kind of discuss what some of the kind of numerical talking points might be about the game or to try and explain why a particular batsman is doing better against the bowling attack than anybody else. So those guys will be often in the studio. No doubt we're going to see more of them in front of the camera as well. 
the main titans of the broadcasting in the UK, Mike Atherton, Nasser Hussain, Rob Key, are gradually warming up to the idea of the fact that they can bring in these, these experts who will offer information that viewers can digest. So this is the fear, is that there's a whole range of cricket fans. Some just want to see Ben Stokes clobber a century in the sun. Others want to really understand the complexities of the game. And I think some of the broadcasters were a bit concerned that bringing these guys in would be a bit alienating for the, the former camp. And not everybody wants the granular level of detail that cricket can offer. But I, I think that they're realising there is a midway and that cricketers are quite good at, at distilling what some of their complex models are actually showing you and why. And actually, the two parts of the business are actually quite complementary in this sense, because when they go in and sit down with teams to explain what the strategy should be for a particular 2020 game, they're dealing with sportsmen and women, not professional data analysts. So they've already had to work on how to sell their message effectively to the teams. Because if you show them too much data, you'll get glazed expressions and the message won't go in. You've got to break this down into, here are your three points, often to the captain first. These are the three things you've got to get your team across for this game. And given that there's everything else that a player has to think about on the day of a match, there isn't the room for really complicated stuff. So they're quite skilled at, at taking what their models are saying and then and then breaking that down into messages that can be absorbed by players and audiences alike. And I think the success of that is, is reflected in the fact that they are becoming more and more visible in the way that cricket is presented on TV. There's a very long answer, but I, I think there's some complementary different sort of threads going on there, which explains why we're seeing more and more of them. No, no, definitely. I think for me, a lot of what you just said has been backed up by my career. Uh, one of the most interesting things I did was, you know, when I first went to St. Lucia and you, you stare at the room for the first time that you're talking to and you realize the vastly different backgrounds that everyone has in a T20 franchise, especially, you know, one with four or five overseas players and overseas coaches. Your coach might have a PhD and you've got kids who uh, didn't finish high school and are only 17 or 18. And you do realize, hey, you have to do that. And the other thing is that a bit like the CrickViz people, I, you know, I do a similar job on TalkSport. Mm-hmm. In fact, we use the CrickViz data on TalkSport when we do that. I've always tried to look at it as a way of, if you're broadcasting, really what you want to be able to do is start a conversation or twist a conversation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so it's completely different to the way that I would do it on my YouTube channel or would write an article for Crick Info or anything like that, or, or would even, you know, if an owner asked me for a list of 20 leg spinners that they can have a look at, that's completely different to what I would do. So it's really interesting how you, you get that across. Let's just talk about the couple of the kids here. So Freddie Wilde, I'm going to embarrass Freddie here, but that's okay. Freddie got into cricket writing and was trying to be me. That was what he wanted to do. He wanted to write big, big features. And then he saw an opening in T20 cricket. And then he went across as almost like a T20 expert in CrickViz's early days, didn't he? It was a very interesting signing for CrickViz at that point, I thought. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the way Freddie tells it amusingly is that he was writing about 2020 cricket freelance and, and partly because he was trying to find his own sort of niche within cricket. And he hedged his bets quite well that, that 2020 at the time was going to get a lot bigger and there was, there was space there. And also, frankly, his generation have grown up with it and don't need to kind of mm. adapt to it in the same way that his parents' generation did. And he got a, his, he, he built quite a big social media following, right, writing about 2020, and then got a, a, a DM on Twitter from someone with a very inauspicious looking account, hadn't put a photo on, hadn't sort of probably identified themselves. And, you know, this is a guy getting a lot of DMs at this point. And it turned out to be from Aiden, who's not as, as tech savvy as Freddie is, saying, I've seen what you're doing. Come and talk to us about what we're doing. 
And that then led to eventually a, a full-time job where he's now the most public-facing and the most well-known mm. person behind CrickFits, which is it's pretty impressive when you're, if you're in your sort of mid to late 20s. And he's been joined by Ben Jones, who again, is, his, his sort of public profile is, is building. And what struck me through reporting this piece was actually how CrickFits has struck gold. The reason they've struck gold is it's a very complicated job because you've got to be sufficiently numerate to understand what the models are spitting out. Yeah. You've got to have a deep knowledge of, of cricket in, in all its forms. And you've also got to be an extremely good communicator because as you were suggesting previously, you know, these dressing rooms that they're speaking to are very diverse. They're going to have young pros who've grown up in 2020, who may have some interest in numbers or likewise possibly don't. You're going to have senior pros who've careers at the moment have, have outlived the, the data age and you know, why do I have to listen to this kid who's never played a first class match in his life? And then you've also got to deal with and not be overawed by giving information to your heroes when you were a kid. So you know, Ben talks about having to talk to Shane Warne, who he spent his childhood pretending to imitate in his garden. He talks about having to talk to Adam Gilchrist in their roles as, as studio pundits and give them something interesting to say and argue why that they should be making those points. Meanwhile, you've also got to be filtering all this data in such a way that's going to get Shane Warne's interest, as well as the, keep the interest of a 17-year-old kid in the dressing room and also talk to, often in some cases, the guys owning and running these teams who have paid a lot of money for your support. That's quite a lot to handle in, you know, in a quite short career. And the fact that these guys are able to do all of that uh, whilst also being the public face of the company, I think it's quite impressive. Yeah, no, definitely. Especially because they're so young. It's okay for someone like me who's old and has been battered by life. Ben especially is still, you know, wide-eyed in many ways. And I think it's incredible what they've been able to do through writing this piece. And as you said before, you sports and money sort of writer. What did you sort of learn writing this piece that you maybe hadn't seen beforehand? What was your sort of your takeaway from it? The reason, I suppose, why I wanted to write it and what I hoped I was going to be reassured about is that cricket is kind of open to innovation because I think cricket still has a poor reputation for being a closed shop that's not particularly welcoming to different faces from different backgrounds. And certainly when it gets to, you know, these guys are right now into the heart of the game. They're at the matches, they're in the Lords, in a sanctum, they're embedded with the broadcasters, they're advising the teams. You know, they've, they've sort of cracked it. Mm. And I wanted to kind of make sure that was the case. That was my sort of outsider's in, impression. And I wanted to know why they were doing it. And it turns out that because they've got something quite valuable, which they've built through a lot of hard work, frankly. And so that is quite a heartwarming tale to me, that the cricket will listen if people have something that needs to be said. And when I talked to Mike Atherton about it, for example, I could hear his sort of, he admits to his sort of inbuilt suspicion about this to start with, and his sort of trepidation about taking some of the wall down with regards to the way that they present the data to, to audiences and kind of hoping they weren't going to alienate anybody. And he's very much warmed up to it now and realises the, the benefit of it, which I think is a positive story for how cricket can be receptive to useful information. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Jared. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. 
This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from Cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. Sports Social Podcast Network.